Welcome to this episode of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. David, a very interesting conversation uh, with uh, Trent Vichy, the CEO of Everwind Fuels, um, a company that just bought the tank farm uh, at the Strait um, and has some big plans that could potentially make a big difference to the carbon emitted in Nova Scotia. Yeah, that's right. A very exciting green hydrogen project. And of course, uh, part of that is the production of green ammonia. But uh, yeah, very, very interesting. He's already invested $100 million of his own money and looking at a potentially billion or more multi-billion potentially sized project in Nova Scotia. This is on the scale of planetary technologies, which we, we inter- interviewed earlier. Uh, uh, so very interesting opportunity, lots of hurdles to overcome to get there. Uh, but uh, I think the listeners will be very, uh, interested to hear what he has to say. Yeah. And we, we know that there's lots of hydrogen projects, I guess, coming down the track in Atlantic Canada. The advantage that Trent has with his operation is he does have that fuel tank at Point Tupper, uh, he told us that it has the ability to store seven and a half million uh, liters or uh, of fuel. I guess that's the right. Uh, thing. Was it barrels uh, or liters? I'm not sure, but it's a lot. Yeah, yeah, maybe it's barrels. I'm not sure, but a lot. <laughs> and uh, of course, what he has that that he said is more important is deep water port to be able to export the products that he produces uh, around the world. And, and so that's a, that's a leg up. Um, the fact that he's invested so much of his own money and is obviously prepared to do more is really important, I think, and a big opportunity. There's a big market for ammonia in, in, in the world. They're, they're actually going to produce five times the amount of ammonia than, than hydrogen. Obviously, the prime use of that is for fertilizer, but it and this is a bit of a surprise for me. It could also be used as a fuel source as well. So I was a bit surprised by that. Apparently had been used, it has been used as a fuel, fuel source in the past. Yeah, the market opportunity is substantial. Just the market for uh, green fertilizer, he was saying it's about 180 million tons of ammonia. And, you know, his f- production facility at full bore, full capacity could supply possibly a million tons a year. So just a tiny fraction of the global market, and that doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of hydrogen, green hydrogen use in vehicles and transportation and other sectors, industrial use. So uh, I think there's lots of opportunity here, Don, and this is one more piece in a potential cluster of green hydrogen projects across the Maritimes in Atlantic Canada. And he's, he's going to use wind to be able to produce green hydrogen and ammonia. Uh, he's going to need a lot of uh, turbines to do this. He mentioned hundreds, and uh, it costs uh, a lot of money for those turbines. For every megawatt of uh, power, it's 1.5 million. Uh, as you mentioned in an earlier conversation, those turbines produce about 2 megawatts. So every one of those is going to cost around $3 million, and if he needs hundreds, it's a big investment, and it's going to take some time to build out. Uh, one of the things I know from uh, talking to my friends in the Port Hawkesbury area is that there's a lot of optimism for offshore wind. Uh, they believe that they have uh, an ideal site to uh, put the wind farms out uh, offshore, which would be uh, probably a little bit uh, better from a 
public uh, acceptance point of view. Uh, but uh, still, it's going to take some time to uh, build out uh, wind capacity to get to his production scale that he's talked about. At the same time, you know, he expects to be able to have approval, government approvals, permitting done by the fourth quarter of this year. So he's not that far away from being able to start uh, the production process, construction yep. process. Yeah, any, any of these big projects that we've been talking about, you know, they do have environmental considerations. They do have uh, community impact considerations. You think about the spaceport project that we talked about earlier, and it does seem they're putting a lot of emphasis on talking to communities and the public and trying to get people to understand what they're proposing and how it's going to positively impact the economy and uh, and region in that area of Nova Scotia. But uh, yeah, lots of work to be done, but a very interesting project. Yeah, just to, and just to throw out some numbers that he that he gave us uh, on the uh, construction of the production facilities, he he gave a number of about five hundred construction workers during that project time. So obviously, this could have a big economic impact uh, during the development phase alone. Um, not as many jobs a longer term, uh, but still permanent jobs that would come out of that. And uh, one of the things that he said that I I really was struck by. He said that uh, Nova Scotia emits about 15 million tons of carbon a year. Uh, if he can build this out to scale, um, he feels that 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 his project alone could eliminate or reduce that amount by about 10%, which I think is, that's a, that's a pretty significant number, don't you think? Yeah, it certainly puts it in context. So there's lots of, as we've heard throughout this series, it's going to take a lot of work, and I don't think the public really understands just how much work is involved and how much cost is involved to fully decarbonize the economy. He thinks there should be a what he called a Marshall Plan, which is a reference to that post-World War II uh, rebuild in Europe. Uh, he thinks there needs to be almost a Marshall Plan for trying to fully decarbonize the economy, but uh, it will take a lot of different projects. It will take tens, hundreds of billions in investment across Canada. And I'm hoping Atlanta Canada will get its share of that investment. And this is an interesting project. I just want to finally say that, you know, uh, as a result of doing this series on, on green energy, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm more optimistic about what's going on in this region than I would have otherwise uh, be. Uh, there, there's certainly a lot of really interesting work uh, going on. People are working behind the scenes, undercover, so to speak. And, and you know, it's not that... Uh, uh, we've uh, reached a point where you should be satisfied, but at least it seems like there's a big effort going on behind the scenes. That's right. And we encourage our listeners to tune in to the other uh, uh, podcasts in this series. We've got one on tidal energy, one on uh, uh, the role of natural gas. We've got one on small modular reactors. So, and we've been talking about the Atlantic Loop and other projects are, uh, along the way. So lots of good discussion, Don, on the energy sector moving forward. And the only thing, the only other thing that I would say is that it's quite clear from our conversation that it's not a single solution; it's a it's a combination of solutions that will get us to a greener, greener economy and a cleaner environment. So, with that in- introduction, here's our conversation with Trent Vichy. Trent, welcome to the podcast. Welcome, all. Well, thanks, uh, thanks for having me. 
Yeah, so Everwind Fuels is undertaking a clean energy project that will create Nova Scotia's first green hydrogen production facility. That's pretty exciting. Trent, before we talk about uh, your company, perhaps you can tell us a little bit about your background and journey to the current role as CEO of Everwind Fuels. I started off my infrastructure career with um, Macquarie Bank, who was um, a you know, world pioneer in the space, uh, was a partner at Blackstone for a few years, and then uh, co-founded uh, Stone Peak, which is one of the largest um, infrastructure managers in the world. You know, that's led me here to this, this point. Can you tell us a little bit about your role at Stone Peak and how that's helped you pursue this new uh, uh, project in uh, Nova Scotia? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I um, uh, you know co-founded the business, so I started it from a blank sheet of paper to you know to, to get it up and running. Um, I mean, during that time, uh, have been involved in a huge number of uh, infrastructure projects across all the different um, sectors. You know, both as an owner, manager, investor. So I've raised capital. You know, invested my own capital, debt financing, operations, building management teams from scratch. I mean, the full the full waterfront, really, and. Um, that's what this needs is somebody who's actually knows how to like breathe life into these businesses. So, uh, Trent, it's early days still, but, uh, how many employees do you have now and what are you projecting in terms of employment when you get up to full production? Right now, like uh, full time at the site, there's, um, I think 72 people. We have, you know, roughly 22, 20 odd, uh, full time contractors. And then sort of on the development team, we're currently at seven. Um, so in total around about a hundred, uh, around about a hundred folks right now, actually doing the development work, we have 15 different firms. So on, in total, we're probably 200 people in terms of getting the development ready in terms of the, the first phase of the project, preliminary numbers are, you know, roughly around, you know, 500 construction jobs. Um, this is for the, you know, the, the first phase. And then in terms of, um, what that'll mean for, um, full-time jobs, additions, you know, it, it's, it's a little bit up in the air, but uh, it'll certainly be somewhere in the order of, say, 30 to 50 people, there, thereabouts, maybe a little bit more. But And then for the second phase, as we get up and uh, up and running, that'll be th- those, those numbers will be, you know, quite a bit larger as well. So, you know, we'll ease into it with the first phase, and um, I think it'll be a pretty big um, uh, economic lift. And, then, and I'm just talking about direct jobs. I just want to go back to Stone Peak mm-hmm. Infrastructure Partners for a second. Uh, sure. I un- understand that you had managed assets of $40 billion. That's a big number. Mm-hmm. Can you give us a couple of examples of the kinds of things that Stone Peak uh, actually invested in? Stone Peak. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's been right across the waterfront. So um, water infrastructure. So I was involved in... Um, building of one of the largest water diesel, or actually the largest uh, water desal plant in North America out in Carlsbad, California, um, data centers, cell towers, um, energy infrastructure, power plants, uh, renewable power, like uh, wind, and, wind and solar, uh, transportation infrastructure. So some of these things are large data center businesses, cell tower businesses. Um, one of our earlier investments was a marine terminal business out in uh, Washington state that's, that's similar, that moved grain and refined products on the Columbia Snake River. I mean, honestly, it's, it's easier to say what I haven't done versus what I have done in uh, like some, some LNG investments. I mean, a, a lot. Yeah. I've been doing this for 25, 25 years and some investments require a lot of work where you have to build management teams from scratch and, and, and develop them. And some, some are, um, you buy a business and then you put growth capital into it. It, it depends on the business. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a uh, great background to have, obviously, for this current project. 
Our, our, mm-hmm. listen, our listeners may not know that your company recently purchased the Port uh, Point Tupper fuel storage facility and that yeah. while you're maintaining existing operations, you have plans to diversify the facility to produce uh, green hydrogen and ammonia. What is the significance of this purchase in terms of your plans? So I think um, the significance is that um, the the Point Tupper asset has been there for a long time and it's an incredible infrastructure asset. It has the deepest ice-free berth on, I believe, on the east coast of uh, North America. So you can take very large vessels. It's been there for a very long time and it has, um, you know, probably close to five, six hundred million dollars of infrastructure in the ground there in terms of like ports um, and storage and pipelines and just other other assets there. It has incredible safety culture there, safety monitoring, water monitoring, fire, spill response. Uh, so it has an incredible uh, track record there. So that business will is ideal to speed and get in uh, and to help Nova Socia get into the green hydrogen and green ammonia market. Can you, can you just give us an idea about the storage capacity that's there now? Because I, I don't think many people know much about uh, that facility. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's, it's uh, 7.5 million barrels of storage sitting there today. And then it has some, some spheres um, and some other miscellaneous assets, but it, it's pretty substantial. It's, these, these are big numbers. So, they are. And the, yeah. the port asset itself is the real gem. It's... Um, uh, has 27 meters of depth. It's ideal for moving product, and it's an ideal place to put the business. Heavy industrial zoned. You've got all the safety and monitoring. You've got uh, an expert team there, and um, it has incredible capacity in terms of um, as this green um, hydrogen and ammonia business grows. Like it's a it's an ideal place to build that business. Right. Can you tell us how much capital you've invested in this project to date and how much more will be required before the production of hydrogen and ammonia, ammonia is operational? Yeah, so um, sitting here today, it's, it's about 100, uh, 100 million has um, been invested today. In terms of the, the first phase of, you know, to, to actually get some the initial production going, it's right around, you know, a billion, billion dollars of capital thereabouts. So in terms of how you typically finance projects like this, it's, it's usually through sort of a, you know, a combination of, you know, bank financing, uh, potentially Canadian infrastructure bank, and then equity. So we've put, you know, essentially 100 million of equity already into the, the project. So there'll probably need to be a little bit more. We're working through with banks what that'll look like. But this is traditional project financing. It's, it's similar structures that are done in PPP deals in broadly across Canada. Um, so a combination yeah. of debt and equity. So to be clear, you you put $100 million of your own money in this project. Correct. That's, that's a big investment. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's a big number. It's a, it's a big number. Um, but look, the, the reason for that is um, when you're developing projects like this, like you need to do a lot of work early on. And so rather than, you know, like there's plenty of people who uh, would you know like to invest in this. There's, there's a huge demand for investment into like these green hydrogen transition fuels, like the phone rings every day on that front. So, but <laughs> by sort of u- like using um, you know, our primary capital here, we were able to move a little bit quicker. And so, you know, like ideally what you want to try and do is move quickly, smartly, without a lot of uh, bureaucracy. And uh, look, we're fortunate. We've been doing like, you know, myself and the rest of the team have been doing this for a long time. And then um, look, over time, like, there will undoubtedly be other partners who will come into the business, okay? But 
like you know like that's the capital side of things isn't really the issue it's it's you know moving through all of the steps you need to bring this to bring this to life and so we, 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 you know, one of our strengths is like our experience, um, you know, like we have more, I'm lucky enough to be one of the more experienced uh, infrastructure professionals in North America um, and capital. I, I really hope that the combination of those two things, we can bring a project like this to life in, in, in the region, you know, and I, I would say that the, the support we're getting sort of across the board, people are like, people are seeing what we've done so far, the money we've invested and like they're, it's clear, like, you know, I, I think it's getting clearer to people that we know what we're doing, but um, um, anyway, we're off to a good start. So what is the expected target date for the first production of hydrogen and ammonia? You know, we're trying to get it um, uh, up in uh, 2025. We're trying to get it in Q1 2025. And look, some of this is, um, you know, we're, we're working hard on that right, right now. And so in, in order to do that, it'll re- require um, some early investment, um, particularly with some of the supply chain issues you've got around the world. So we're, you know, working hard on identifying what, you know, what is going to take a little bit longer and, and sort of moving quicker on those types of things. Um, but, you know, some of this is in our control and some of it's not. So that's what we're trying to do. I think we can do that, but mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's a hell of a lot of work. So we wanted to ask you about the uses, at least initially, for this hydrogen. There's a lot of competition across the country. Alberta is trying to do uh, create hydrogen. I think it's blue hydrogen, though, using natural gas. Other mm-hmm. provinces have suggested they want to be in the hydrogen game. Um, so w- what are the markets for the hydrogen? What are the uses for this hydrogen? And I just wanted to ask you a follow-up about uh, how you get that hydrogen to market. Yeah, no, it's a good, it's a good question. So... Um the base business plan is to make hydrogen and then to, um, uh, to you know, to uh, use that to make green ammonia. And so uh, green ammonia is um, easier to transport than hydrogen. It has a lower point of turning into a liquid at minus 33, whereas uh, uh, hydrogen is, you know, minus 270-ish, I believe. Um, so it's a little bit easier and it's a little bit denser. Um, so the lower transportation costs. But part of uh, what we're trying to do is um, it's a little bit of chicken and egg in terms of the hydrogen economy. You can't have hydrogen users without hydrogen supply. And so like ammonia is a ready market like sitting here today. In fact, I mean, ammonia is so fundamental to human life on the planet that, uh, you know, if you didn't have ammonia sort of as a farm fertilizer, you know, I've been told that there'd be 3 billion less people on the planet right now. So it's, it's critical. And today that ammonia is being made primarily from natural gas. And so uh, ammonia is, um, you know, hydrogen as well as nitrogen. And so nitrogen just comes from air separators. It's 80% of the air we breathe. And then the hydrogen um, has been traditionally coming from fossil fuels like natural gas. So uh, natural gas is CH4. So you break off the hydrogen in steam reformation uh, and then, you know, that hydrogen goes into the, the process for ammonia. Unfortunately, as part of that process, you produce a lot of CO2. So for every ton of ammonia, you get two tons of CO2. So that's a, like, it's fundamental for life. Um, it's really heavily used in agriculture. And right now it's, uh, it's a big CO2 emitter. So that's an obvious place to go. But in terms of the uses, um, you can use it for uh, fuel and power plants, hydrogen fuel cell cars, and look, there's a lot of debate around there about hydrogen fuel cell cars, you know, lots of high profile people saying batteries, this batteries versus this. And you know what? 
uh, at least as far as I can tell. Batteries are great for, for short term, fast turnaround, lighter lighter applications. But in terms of like heavier, longer distance, uh, hydrogen fuel cells are like a very effective way of doing it. So it's 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 not one or the other. There's 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 two distinct use, uses that I can see. It's our understanding that you intend to use wind to produce electricity that will in turn be used to produce hydrogen. A lot mm-hmm. of our listeners don't understand that process. Can you can you provide a little education on how that process actually works? Yeah, for sure. So, um, I mean, the process is called electrolysis. And so this is something that, you know, high school kids can do in a lab. Um, so what you do is you put electricity, two electrodes into water, and run a current through that and that splits the water molecule which is h2o into h and o and so if the electricity going into that process comes from wind or a renewable resource that that h is called green h you know it's coming you're taking renewable power um and using electrolysis which has been around for you know hundreds you know at least 100 years and you make uh, hydrogen um and you can google this online the only real difference between you know what we're doing is we're taking the same process and um, you know you, you you make um, you put stacks of them in a essentially what looks like a warehouse um, and so you take that renewable power in there um, you add water and you you make hydrogen so that's essentially what you do and like anybody who's curious uh, you can Google you know green hydrogen videos and there's like, you know thousands of them on the internet. Um, to, to, just to look at it. And in terms of uh, who else is doing this around the world, it is, it's a lot of people. I mean, it's, it's like all of the largest energy companies in the world are, are, are pursuing this. Um, I think a month or two ago, the European Union announced that they're supporting $270 billion of um, investments into this space. So you may not have heard of it, but uh, it is coming in a, in a really large way. Hmm. Can you tell us how many wind turbines will be needed initially in your production process to make it work? It depends on. So the process itself is um, is a scale is a scale process. So it, it'll certainly be a fair number, and that, that's honestly it's probably the biggest issue when you when you look at these types of businesses. You know, I, I'd say to people that like everybody um, loves wind, um, but you know they don't like it near you know like residential areas, and that's that's honestly the biggest thing. So, you know, at this, at this point, I'd say several hundred, like it'll be a decent amount. And, you know, like that's, that's actually what you, you know, what you need. And the most important part of that is, um, you know, being like engaging with the communities early to figure out like where to put it. Um, Cause there's, there's flexibility there and like how to minimize those, those, those impacts. But like, you know, like I don't want anyone to be under any illusion. I mean, it's, it, it does take a fair amount of, um, you know, wind power. I think the ideal situation is over time that, that most of that happens offshore so that it's a little bit more removed. But again, that requires the appropriate environmental work, support from the fisheries, First Nations and, and, and other folks. And so, you know, I think doing it transparently and just people deciding if, you know, that's what they want, I think is really, really critical. You know, like so far, the work we've done on engagement is very, very clear to me that... <laughs> I don't know what other people do, but I, you know, we've, we've just been out there and telling people, you know, what we see, how we see it, and, you know, what we like to do. And, and, and then we say, well, you know, talk, talk to us. We'd like to understand as well. And um, yeah, that, that approach has, you know, has resonated pretty well. I don't think a lot of folks use it. And, and honestly, I don't understand why. I really don't. 
Uh, people are adults and want to be treated treated that way. So I think you've partially answered this question already, but are you planning on owning your own wind farms or are you planning on contracting that to other suppliers and just purchasing the power from them? Look, I think it's uh, look, we're, we're open to a combination, okay? Like um, there's no magic per se there. But what I will tell you is that we don't want to put ourselves in a position where we're waiting for others, okay? So like to the extent that we can get the get that get that from others, very very open, and like we're very open open at partnering, but um, we are at least for the you know the initial phases taking, you know we, we need to take initiative because you know, in my experience when you wait around for others and you don't really have control of when they come online, you know you it's it's impossible to deliver. So it, it, that's more the issue. And then in terms of like going forward, we're very open to partnering with others like no issue at all it's just we want to make sure we breathe, we breathe life into the project initially now are you religiously tied to wind or would other forms of renewable energy hydro or solar or others be acceptable so what i'd say there is uh, no, i mean there's no magic per se it's really what it comes down to is the, the biggest input cost into making um, green hydrogen is is the cost of power so Let's just say, for example, there are solar panels that could make um, power at two cents a kilowatt hour, uh, for sure. It's, it's really just a function of that. There is no magic per se there. It just happens that Nova Scotia is you know, a fairly windy place and therefore uh, the cost of wind power is relatively cost effective. Just a quick, quick question on that. Like, If you build your own uh, windmills, you've already yep. said it's going to take a billion dollars to get the full production. It's a big yep. number. I'm assuming that includes wind farms. Can you give our listeners an idea of the cost of putting up a single wind turbine? Just the just yeah. To so it's um, the rough, I mean, these are rough rules of thumb. Sure. Okay. So sure. um, uh, like industry sort of like rule of thumb is like uh, 1.5 million dollars per megawatt of of wind power. You know, approximately. And how That's many megawatts will you need then? <laughs> Maybe that's another way of asking the question. Yeah. So what will um, you know, in terms of like getting to an industry scale uh, project, you know, you'll need roughly around 2000 megawatts of wind. So it's, it's, look, it's a big number. Okay. Wow. Um, no, I'm, I'm, and again, uh, that is what it's going to take on a, on a, on a global scale. And to, to be honest, that's actually at the low end uh, in terms of what, you, you know, what we're seeing in other parts of the world. So what we're trying to do is get to a, like a scale project um, initially, and then, um, as you know, if, if, for example, offshore wind happens um, and there's larger scales of, of um, you know, of wind power, we have the scale, like the scale facility that can, um, you know, work with offshore wind developers to, to bring that to life. Um, so it has the dual benefit of, um, you know, with that, that initial scale, we can help catalyze the offshore wind industry if, if that ultimately is um, the direction that, you know, the market goes. One thing, I just in terms of context, okay, right now to keep the world under 1.5 degree um, temperature increase, I, you know, it's roughly, I, I believe that we have a budget of roughly around about, you know, 400, 450 gigatons of, of carbon. And like the world right now, as I understand, is issuing, is emitting around 40. And so if you want to actually get to those numbers, <laughs> we need, like, forget about what we're doing today, you, you probably need renewable power like factories making wind solar that are you know 20 times what we have today like this is a real issue you know like and (laughs) 
it'll just increasingly like flow flow forward where you'll you know each year there'll be like worse news reports okay um and all of this stuff takes a lot of time uh, i i would almost say that the world needs like like a marshall plan type mentality uh to to go and address this so i think we we view our role as um you know we're, we're like we're one you know one team here but uh, what what can we do is we can play a part in sort of you know being early and showing people how it's done and um in my in my experience um that's the hardest part and then once it's sort of been done and it worked through it's much easier to sort of build a build a broader industry and i mean look that's happening across the world but that that's how i view our role it's a serious issue how much hydrogen uh and ultimately green ammonia will you eventually be able to produce are you expecting this to be an export product or will there be enough demand in uh in canada or in eastern canada for the for the for the product yeah, look. Ultimately, there's things I don't control there. I, I think I think it'll be both. Ideally, if you, I think you could probably get the business running a, uh, a little faster by like exporting or at least uh, you know moving on the water. But like once you've actually got a supply, you can actually have the demand come come along. So if, um, for example, you know in five years time there's a hundred thousand you know hydrogen fuel cell cars and trucks, then more of the hydrogen is going to be used locally. Um, and the other thing too is that. Um, hydrogen itself, um, if, you, if you've got uh, like enough volume, it's very, it's very efficient to move it in like dedicated hydrogen pipelines. Like if you think about the power from renewable energy versus a pipeline, you can actually put 10 times the amount of energy into a pipeline in the form of hydrogen versus transmission. So what, like you just need scale. But once you have scale, uh, I believe that that will start to happen. And in fact, in Europe, they're starting to actually build out that infrastructure. Forget about like hydrocarbon. I'm talking about dedicated hydrogen pipelines. So, how close are you to the Maritimes and North Seas pipeline? Because there's not a lot of use of it up there now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, yeah. Look, I'm not an engineer, uh, but we're not. Too, I mean, look, we're not too far away from from that area. But you know, in the future, could uh, you have hydrogen uh, flying down there? Look, maybe. But it, it depends on depends on the demand use at the end. And so we, we, we just we just recently talked to the CEO of Heritage Gas who said he could blend hydrogen into his natural gas with no change to current infrastructure Yeah, because of how it's built with plastic. I don't know, Don, if you remember, but there's some something about the infrastructure that yeah. means unless, I mean, if you went 100% hydrogen, it would take infrastructure investment. So that's really very interesting. Thanks. Yeah, no, I'm, I've, I've chatted with the, chatted with the Heritage gas, gas folks and their system is relatively new. So I believe um, the pipelines are... Like a plastic and, and can take yeah. hydrogen. What he said, uh, well, you know, what they, as I understand it, what, all they would need to do is look at sort of some of the burner tip um, type infrastructure. I think the actual pipelines or the like distribution pipes are like are suited for it. And yeah. um, but people are actually blending um, hydrogen into, you know, in with natural gas and they're testing, you know, five, 10% blends. It gets trickier at like the higher percentage you, you go. And so even on uh, power plants, you know, they're, they're doing blending at the moment, but uh, the Siemens and the, the, those types of folk are working hard on uh, making like pure H2 capable uh, turbines. And there's just like some heat and chemistry tweaks that need to be made, like to go from like uh, a turbine that burns natural gas to pure hydrogen. But I mean, that work is going on right now. So that's very interesting. I just want to confirm what you said. So you're saying that this one of the sources of baseload electricity production could be ammonia or hydrogen uh, powered. No, for sure. I mean, look, if you 
if you think about it, um, renewable power and wind has got to a point where it is like very cost effective and cheap. When the issue you have is the, the wind doesn't blow all the time. Okay. So like, how do you deal with that? And, you know, it's probably going to be a combination like um, batteries, you know, stronger transmission lines, things that are going on like the Atlantic Loop are going to be really helpful. And um, you couldn't, you can use hydrogen, like in terms of uh, in power plants. There, there are firms like right now that are even looking at uh, hydrogen fuel cells. So you can put um, hydrogen into these fuel cells as like small, smaller scale power generators or, or microgrids. In fact, I was reading this morning uh, about a data center company, I forget which one, um, who was using hydrogen fuel cells as sort of their backup power for their data center, like mm. in, a, in a microgrid format. It's, it's moving pretty quickly. Uh, Trent, once you reach full production, uh, mm -hmm. when we talked about the you know, carbon uh, emissions, how much uh, um, will carbon emissions be reduced through your, uh, your work? Can you put a number? Can you put this number in perspective for our listeners? Like this is one of the yeah. challenges I think the public has, understanding <laughs> yeah. an impact. So you know, yeah. things that they understand. For an example, how many gas burning cars would be replaced on an annual basis through the production of, you know, green hydrogen? Huh. Oh, that's a, that's. A, that's I should be ready for this question, and I'm embarrassed <laughs> that I'm not. But let me let me answer maybe a slightly <laughs> different way, and sure. uh, I can come back to you on that one, but. So Nova Scotia's CO2 emissions are 15, I think it's 15 million tons per annum right now. Okay. So like that's, that's province, province wide. We think that sort of, you know, around the first phase, we can probably get to like around about the million mark with our, our second phase, probably be about two, which, which is pretty meaningful. The other thing that is happening, you know, right now is um, electric electrification. Okay. So like right. um, cars will be more more Teslas and, and battery-based cars. More applications will be running on electricity, and that's just going to require more green green power going into 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 the grid. But then, look, there are certain there are certain parts of the economy you can't decarbonize without something like green hydrogen. You know, there's right. you know, I was looking at this the other day. It's probably somewhere in the order of like you know four or five million of those of those fifteen million tons. You re require sort of like a clean liquid fuel to replace like heavier right. transport, etc. I, I just want to, I just want to clarify this number. You're, you're saying that Nova Scotia emits about 15 million tons of carbon a year. Is that the number roughly? Yeah, I think it's about right. And, and you're saying, uh, in the first phase of your project, yeah. you're going to take 1 million of those 15 millions out of, out of the air. And there's a little bit of assumption around there. I mean, we've, um, we don't control this completely, but, um, you know, there is the ability to look at, you know, providing green hydrogen that can be replacing fossil power plants. So, right. you know, like, I'm, so I'm thinking about it from that perspective. And then, um, I mean, the project itself between the first and second phase, if, you, if it was just going to straight, like green ammonia, like those numbers are probably somewhere in the range of, you know, I don't know, half, like half, like half a million tons, probably at the very, very low end. And then, in, like as we get sort of the second phase of the project, you know, we're probably getting up to around about two. You know, yeah, like That's, it's, it's 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 a decent amount. Like it's not nothing. Well, it's it's ten percent. One one project yeah. can take ten percent away. That's a pretty yeah. big deal, it seems to me, right, David? <laughs> yeah, it's an amount equivalent to some of yeah. that 
carbon will be removed uh, in, in uh, agriculture or other uses. Yeah. It's, yeah. Not all, it's not all Nova Scotia, but I, I get it in terms of magnitude. It's very impressive. Yeah. Well, it depends. Again, it depends on um, uh, the, the end uses. So we're offering it. And so it's a question of whether um, it's going to be used. And if it's used, then uh, and, and you can use it to, for example, repower a coal plant, then like that, that's a, that, that's a pretty, that, that'll be a pretty stark number. You know, we'll do our best to deliver what, what, what we, what we can, but it's a, you know, we don't have complete control of that. Right. I just want to ask you a question about ammonia for a second. Um, sure. Because, uh, you know, we talked about how it could be used for fertilizer. Obviously, it's a big use of fertilizer, but you're also suggesting it could be used as a fuel source as well. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's not even like suggesting it's being, it can be used as a fuel source. It has been used as a fuel source and it is being used as a fuel source. Uh, one of the, just a, just a fun, uh, like a fun anecdote or, anyway just a historical anecdote is that um uh, i think it was in world war one or two uh, when the allies had um you know cut off uh, germany's supply of oil uh, they were using ammonia to run run their like their buses and, and their cars and you, you can actually do that it's done has been done historically right now the shipping industry is looking for like a green fuel uh to replace um their current fuel source and the two lead contenders are ammonia or green methanol. Uh, some some with um, natural gas, but that's obviously not like straight green. But but, but there may be some carbon emission reductions. But I mean, it's, it's not me just saying that's this is happening right now. Do you know how? But you talked a little bit earlier about the market potential. But do you know how big that market potential is for fertilizer, for ammonia? Green yeah. Ammonia? So t- well, the ammonia market today is 180 million tons per annum, and a lot of it is. Um, produced like domestically so like like it's like produced locally and consumed locally uh about i think it's about 10 or 15 percent of it uh, is is seaborne trade um but it's a big number and you know to put some context around it and why the like what's happening in russia is 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 important is a lot of russian gas was going to you know fertilizer ammonia production facilities if you read about it, issues around gas supply have led to shutdowns, curtailments, and all sorts of issues on fertilizer supply, uh, which obviously feeds into you know food production. You know when you put ammonia on on um, farmland, you get almost a doubling of the food production. You know thereabouts. So it's it's a big number, and that's why I say that like sitting here today, you know like I've heard from other people that you know without this like ammonia, there'd be three billion less people on the planet. It's a big issue. So we're pushing you a bit on numbers. I apologize for that because I know it's early days. But if yeah. all of your green ammonia went to the fertilizer market, how much of that 180, just for context, is, <laughs> is that 1 million tons? Is it a half a million tons? Is it 2 million? What, what, would it, what, what, what chunk of that market could you supply from the point topper facility at full, uh, full production? Well, um, it's, it's really, well, sorry. With the, the wind I talked about, the call it the 2,000 megawatts, that translates into around about a million tons of um, ammonia, and it's look. It's a bit, I mean, it's a big number. Um, ammonia prices, you know, are uh, at the moment have been sort of north of a thousand dollars a ton. Like that's a lot higher than what they've been historically. But um, like these are these are decent size size numbers. The actual uh, type of facility, it's not const- like the only const- the only real constraint is how much renewable power you can get to the site, the actual shipping infrastructure there and what we have on site and land can handle a lot more than a million tons, like a lot more. Do you need a lot of water? 
You do, yes, but it's not, it's not as much as you really think. So we do have, um, in fact, on the within the perimeter of the site, we have uh, Lake Landry, which is um, uh, it's jointly managed by um, Richmond County and the town of Port Hawkesbury. But there's, there's more than enough water there just from that source to um, give us the water we need. I mean, Lake Landry was actually built historically uh, as a way to supply uh, water for industrial users. It was almost like, built, let's build it. Maybe we can attract a paper plant or, or some other facility. So uh, it was like oversized. It does uh, supply, you know, water like today to local town, etc. But it's not a constraint uh, sitting here today. Like it's more than enough water there. Uh, your uh, company literature indicates that you anticipate being able to p- produce much more ammonia than hydrogen. I think the ratio is about five to one based on the number I saw. Yep. It must mean that ammonia is much more valuable than hydrogen. You gave us the idea that it's a thousand dollars a ton. Well, so that's what I, it is today. So again, yeah, it, uh, yeah. I haven't checked it in the last uh, little while, but it's you know, if a couple of years ago it was trading at like sort of in the four five hundred range, you know, with some of the disruptions, it's got as high as like you know thirteen, fourteen, fifteen hundred. It's come back a bit now, right? Uh, so it's it's moved around a little bit. And, and but, what's uh, what's what's the equivalent value of hydrogen per ton? Uh, you know, like world depends on where you produce it. And this is, you know, people sort of talk about, you know, green hydrogen prices and the sort of, you know, four to six dollar range today. Um, people say that the magic to really get um, hydrogen competitive with fossil fuels is, you know, a dollar to two dollars, um, you know, but uh, that, that, that's sort of we get, get it to an equivalency. But so we're not too, too far away from that. I can give you some color as to how I think it gets there and gets there pretty quickly. But um, the other thing that's happened with hydrogen is, well, uh, natural gas prices go up. People won't invest capital or there's less capital going into natural gas exploration. There's various carbon regimes that have come in place. And, you know, so hydrogen from natural gas is more expensive today than it was like five years ago. So, Hmm. you know, maybe it continues to go up. At the same time, the cost of green hydrogen with um, industry scale and efficiency will go down. You know, we're pretty pretty close to that inflection point, like right now, and that's why you've got projects popping up all around the world. That's why you have you know Europeans um, looking at you know two hundred and fifty billion dollar investments um, into the space. Um, there was actually an announcement uh, yesterday, part of the U.S. Uh, tax re- uh, regime with uh, I think it was Schumer and Manchin talking about like uh, like uh, some sort of credit scheme who, who knows what happens there but like there's a lot of fo- lot of focus on there I, I personally think that the industry just with some scale is gonna is gonna pick up a lot of like price improvements from where from where it stands today right uh, obviously as you mentioned there's a lot of interest in green hydrogen production worldwide yeah. but also in Atlantic Canada there's uh, several initiatives underway including your own. Yeah, you had the uh, a significant advantage, it seems to us, in terms of your infrastructure already in place for storage. That's <laughs> that's a big leg up. Yeah, but where are you currently in the process? Um, so right now we're um, you know well advanced on um, you know getting our project uh, ready you know for you know the start of construction. So we're uh, we've got fifteen different firms. We've got Hatch, Nell, KBR doing the engineering. We're not too far away from bringing in um, some, uh, like an EPC provider. But in terms of the permitting process, um, you know, we've started that. I, 
have been saying publicly that I think we can get that done by Q4 of this year. You know, I still believe that sitting here today. Um, and then really it comes down to the other missing pieces are the um, uh, getting the sort of the, you know, the final engineering done, which was, you know, we've done the pre-feed engineering. We're now sort of working on, you know, we've got, you know, the front end engineering, like the really detailed uh, engineering. So there's a lot of work to do and we're spending a, a lot of money on, on this right now. Like uh, the reason that these numbers are so big is because it's a real commitment. Um, but, you know, I feel I feel pretty good about it. I, I, I do. Um, but there's, you know, there's a few things that we need to, you know, to come into place like uh, that are really, that's really, really important to us. And look, the reality of it is that um, you, you, this is a scale game. Like how do you actually make green hydrogen cheap enough so that it's competitive with um, fossil fuels well it's through scale and that scale brings down price and scale is what the market wants and, and needs to to breathe life into this industry you know it's not with science projects of 20 megawatts it's like we're talking about big industrial scale it's just what it's going to take but once you hit that point where there is like you know people you can get to the point where green hydrogen is like uh, forget about subsidies it's like uh you know cheaper that's that's when the flywheel starts to happen and people that'll really accelerate things and you know it's no better way to decarbonize than for there to be you know it to be a cheaper energy source you know mm. that will really really make it take off i was going to ask you when you expect to begin construction of the production production plant and you can answer that question but i wanted i guess yeah. A big part of this is the wind energy, though, too, right? You must be equally focused on getting that infrastructure in place as much as your plant. It's, it's really the one project, but starting with green power that's coming from the grid to get there a little bit quicker, but then um, uh, get the wind up and up and up and running. So, you know, the, like what we're trying to get uh, into position is, you know, production of um, the initial phase in um, uh, 2025 and then, you know, production from the sort of, you know, the broader project by 2026 and um you know there are some things that you know candidly we need to make that happen and so uh we announced the project in um uh, february of uh of this year you know we've been out in the public and you know uh but you know we, we do need to you know secure some lands and crown lands and we have applications in there you know and look, there's just things out of our control like uh and ultimately uh, we've got a project that can really deliver and it can deliver on a, on a very fast time frame and deliver huge benefits. But, um, you know, there are government processes. So, you know, we've got to, we've got to work through those things and, you know, we'll work through them and deliver as transparently as we can. Like, here's what we've got and here's what we're doing. I mean, the advantage we do have is that um, we have a port and infrastructure in place that to the best of my, you know, analysis and, you know, lawyers and environmental uh, engineering firms, probably means we can get to market three and a half years before others but you know who knows but that's certainly what certainly what i see sitting here today and so we, we really want to you know get going and but again like part of that is you know processes and you know that's that's life and that's what we that's what we'll work through so we've already talked about the market potential so i'll kick it back to you don to talk about uh work with the migma Oh uh, yeah, I just wanted to. Uh, you mentioned, I think, uh, in some of your press information that you have a number of customer MOUs in place to buy the product, which is good. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, uh, does that provide you with the level of confidence? To, uh, I guess that there's going to be markets for this material as soon as it's available. Oh yeah, 
yeah, yeah. That 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 actually, <laughs> um, that that's probably the least of my my worries in terms of there is definitely there's buyers out there. I'm not too worried about that, and part of it is just working through the system and making sure you've worked through all of the details. There's 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 demand for this um, for the product. No, there's no question about that. So again, like uh, like MOUs, like whatever. It's it's really what the market needs is like um, you know production fast, and yeah. so. That, that's actually the real, you know, you can sign MOUs to the cows come home, but like that, that doesn't mean anything unless there's actually a real production you can bring online. That That's actually what's in short supply right now. Sure. It might help with uh, attracting capital though, right? <laughs> uh, no, for sure, no, for sure. No, no, sorry. I agree with that. But uh, yeah. I'm just saying that, that it's pretty, it seems pretty clear to me that the, the market demand is there. Yeah. You know? You're current working with the MIGMA on an MOU. Uh, can you tell us the status of that MOU and what the objectives are of that agreement? Yeah, I'd say I'd say it's, it's probably more broad than that. I mean, we're you know we're we're working through you know the sort of like the appropriate processes, um, but also like um, you know working with individual bands and then um, just uh, honestly, <laughs> you see agreements which I think are interesting, but like I've sort of taken the the view and the approach that. Um, agreements hopefully over time document what you're already doing and so rather than waiting around um you know we've been doing a lot of like just individual things where you know we just we're just getting to work today on that front you know been working with um like indigenous owned firms we've been you know holding meetings consultations uh, we're working on educational material as best we can jobs um you know and look the, the agreements like we'll work through those over time okay like I'm, I'm not too like you know that that takes time and there's a process involved but uh i think we'll, the things we can do today is we can just take action and and start to actually just do the things that you know like you would do anyway if you had an agreement um so and we're, we're working through that right now i doing our best job yeah um, but so far the engagement's been really really good and getting a good response uh, just a few more questions, Trent, but I uh, mm -hmm. wanted to ask you, what are the biggest obstacles left for Everwind to get to the production stage? Um, it's really, um, there's a few, I mean, there's, there's always probably making sure that we've got um, access to lands, we can put the wind, it's probably, probably number one. I think the environmental side for initial phase should be okay. The part of it is also just getting sort of, um, you know, we need to do a little bit of work with uh, utility on some some of the initial power supply. Uh, been working on that. Um, it's really a combination of these things. I, I'd say probably the land's probably, probably the biggest thing. You know, there's always a little things uh, that, that come along. You know, at the end of the day, uh, to, to deliver one of these projects, you, you really have to be scoring a 10 out of 10. Like, and so, uh, you know, there's always something every day that I'm like pops up I'm worried about, but um, they're, they're probably the big ones. Yeah. Trent, there's lots of economic impacts and benefits associated with this project, as you've outlined today. So yeah. Don and I are very interested in green hydrogen as an economic development opportunity for the province and region. There is something yeah. called the Atlantic Hydrogen Alliance that's, that's got a bunch of players all trying to figure out where they play in the supply chain or the opportunities, including your own project. Do you think this area could become a major producer of green hydrogen you know, for use in local, but also export markets? There's no question. There's absolutely zero question in my mind on that. Like I, like I, I know what the market is saying they would like to buy. I know what like 
you know, you can see what the amount of like wind that could be produced and putting the two together, like there's no question about it. I mean, it could be, could be a, a, um, a very large industry. I think the biggest constraint really will be, it's, it's really the amount of renewable power. And so I think it is, um, you know, like if it's going to be a really, really large industry, you need to work through like what you can do offshore, because I, I just think it's easier to some degree when, you know, to, to build scale. But, but it comes down to like, you know, there's important considerations, environmental fisheries, like um, consultations with First Nations and involvement of First Nations. I mean, there's a lot to be done. Uh, I know that there's a lot of focus on it from the standpoint of the um, federal government, the provincial government. It feels like there's the willpower there. Part of it is just honestly just trying to navigate a sensible process and not let a bureaucratic process like cause unnecessary delays. And I think you can do, but like at the end of the day, it's got to be done right. Okay. But, um, you know, I think with focus and cooperation, I think it should be able to be done. This is something that, like, forget about partisan stuff. Like, this is just, like, it's something that, you know, you really do need cooperation between the, the two folks. And, you know, like, I think that'll happen. But, you know, like, <laughs> you know, it is important that, you know, the one thing I think that um, it's just one thing that needs to happen. It needs to be sort of like sort of a joining of joining of hands and to look at, the, you know, what, what needs to be done. So last question, you've been reaching out, talking to communities and other stakeholders in the area. What reaction have your plants had in the Strait area specifically uh, and also across Nova Scotia? Yeah, I mean, so far, I mean, uh, we've had a really good response in terms of like people have been supportive of, um, of the project. I haven't had much in the way of sort of no, like noise come back. Um, look, I think the only thing which I really see is just look, there's going to be some areas that are more sensitive to you know, wind popping up in them versus versus others. You know, for example, like in Venice County, like they've just got a high-end booming economy coming up there and, you know, there's probably other places to put wind. And that, I think they put a moratorium out there. Like, like candidly, we, we, like, it took, took me like two seconds to figure out that, that that was not a place that made any sense to, to, to put wind. So it's just, again, it's just trying to figure out all those those types of things. But no, I, say gen- I say generally supportive. Um, I don't... I haven't seen any big red flags and uh you know in terms of like if anyone wants to talk about it i'm happy to go anywhere like i really am like um I've, you know <laughs> this may sound funny but um you know like in terms of like inquiries that have come through the website like rather than like email back i've picked up the phone you know and part of that is one i want to show that you know people's concerns are important secondly there's no better way to learn than just actually listen to people and talk to them and understand like you know I, like so i actually want that personal learning experience so I can understand what's going on. Um, I mean, look, there's an end, like I couldn't be like on the phone 24 hours a day, but like, um, uh, like I've been able to respond to those personally. It's been helpful. Uh, I've learned a lot. Well, Trent, we'd really like to thank you for joining us on the Insights Podcast and helping uh, us better understand not only your own project, but the potential for green energy in our region. We wish you every success and look forward to following up with you in the future. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I'll come back anytime you guys want me. (laughs) Great. Thanks. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights Podcast. Mark Legere helped produce this episode. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week.